Hello and welcome back to the Be Well Together podcast. I'm your host, Katherine Bowen, and I'm the Director of Employee Engagement Programs at Salesforce. In this weekly series, we bring in luminary speakers and well-being experts to provide insights and tips related to all aspects of mental, physical, and social well-being to help you thrive at work and at home. In this episode, we're talking about food. If you're like me and love to eat, then this episode is for you. Today, you'll learn about the interconnected relationship between food, our health, and the environment, and what small changes we can make to our diets that not only take care of the environment, but boost our bodies as well. And there's no better person to explore this topic with than author and journalist Michael Pollan. Michael is best known for his books that explore the socio-cultural impacts of food, such as The Botany of Desire and The Omnivore's Dilemma. In this extensive conversation, Jody Conner, our Executive Vice President of Global Enablement at Salesforce, speaks with Michael about the ways we nourish our bodies and what those processes mean for the planet, lessons learned from gardening, and why cooking your own food is beneficial for both your physical and mental health. With that, I'll turn it over to Jody and Michael. Hello there. Hello. Welcome back to Be Well Together. We have such a great show for you today. I know I say that all the time, but today I mean it even more because here to help us continue to celebrate Earth Month and help us focus on ways to care for ourselves, to care for our planet, to do everything through sustainable eating, we have the incomparable Michael Pollan here. Ah, hello, Michael. <laughs> hey, Jody. Good to be here. It's great to have you here. So for those of you who are thinking, Michael Pollan, I know that name. Who is this guy? Yes, you know this man. This is the author of The Botany of Desire. This is the author of The Omnivore's Dilemma of Indefensive Food. He has won more awards internationally, nationally. I can't possibly name them all here. But today, he is joining us to talk a little bit about how and the ways that we nourish our body, the ways that we this contributes to our planet and how being more conscious of our food choices is just all sorts of awesomeness all around. So let's jump into this. Michael, can you start by just telling us a little bit about your story and about just how did you come to be so conscious about the relationship between humans and nature and the role that food plays in that? Yeah, well, my work is really very much about the human engagement with the natural world. And eating, of course, is one of our most profound engagements with nature, taking nature into our bodies. And for me, it all began in the garden. I've been a gardener for a long time. I mean, when I was eight years old, I had a a little, what I called a farm next to my tract house in suburban Long Island. But then I started gardening in earnest in my late 20s, I guess. We bought a place outside of New York. And it really is, the garden is just this wonderful teacher. And as you watch these plants develop, as you discover that, oh my God, I can grow food for myself, you begin to think about these relationships. And I like, Americans who write about nature often go to the wilderness, and that's great. And you learn certain things in the wilderness. But I think you learn some more useful lessons in the garden where you're changing it, it's changing you. It's just a much more vibrant engagement. Mm. And I always loved growing food. It was always a, a kitchen garden. And, you know, a lot flows from that. You start growing food, you're going to start cooking. 
you know, it just kind of very naturally flows. And you also begin to learn what plants need to be happy. And you're forced to deal with all these issues like pests. How do you deal with pests without like polluting your soil? I'm talking about both animal pests. And I was going to say the pests that I have are the deer and they're driving me nuts. Yeah. Oh, and I've been in wars with various pests in my first book, uh, which is really about gardening called Second Nature. I got in a war with a woodchuck that was decimating my garden. This is on the East Coast. And I did things I am so ashamed of uh, <laughs> that people don't would not associate with me, but it involved things like firebombing a woodchuck burrow. I mean, it, it can really make you crazy. So I realized the whole drama of humans and the soil and plants and their eating gets played out in the garden. And that became, that was the germ of all the work that followed. That's amazing. I've not been a gardener. I married a gardener. Um, That's good enough. So, right, great, go for it, dear. But I think the this pandemic has definitely, as we've all taken on new hobbies, I've definitely taken a greater interest in gardening. And you are so right. The fact that I can now have about once a week, we can have a salad that is big enough to serve as a meal and it has come completely from our backyard. And that is unbelievably gratifying on just a whole different spiritual level. Yeah. And you're not going to get food that's fresher, obviously. And no. there's something about produce when it's just picked and goes right into the kitchen. The sugars are at their highest levels. The crispness is as good as it's ever going to get. And uh, it's something incredibly satisfying. And as you're, you're right, during the pandemic, you know, gardening has taken off. I mean, it's very hard to get seeds. Uh, there's a shortage of seeds. I, I usually plant potatoes in my garden and you have to start potatoes from little potatoes and can't find any this year. They're out. So it's one of the happier things, both home cooking and gardening have spiked during the pandemic. And I'm hoping people learned that they actually like it and will continue to do both activities afterward. Well, so let's talk a little bit about that because prior, you're right, prior to the pandemic, we were in this really crazy curve when people were just not cooking enough. And you've said often, like, who is cooking your food, right? And it's and a key question. You know, it's more, it's, it's even more key than am I eating a healthy meal? Because if you can answer that question in the affirmative that I'm cooking at least some of my meals, you don't even have to tell me what you're eating. That's healthy food. So talk to us a little bit about that, about that kind of when you think about like the importance of the difference between home cooking and like processed food or fast food, like what do you really want people to zero in on and understand about the benefits there? Well, corporations- Maybe that, my thinking is maybe that'll get them to like keep doing this as things start to open up, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I think who cooks your food is really central. And all you have to do is think about how corporations cook and their motives in doing so. When industry is cooking for us, and I'm not talking about the local restaurant, I'm I'm talking about big companies who sell processed food. Their goals are to make the food seem as fresh as it is. And they use a lot of chemicals to do that because food is not meant to be on a shelf or even in a freezer for that long. So they have to do things to that food that no home cook would ever do. I mean, just look on the ingredients on any food you buy, any processed food. See how many of those ingredients a normal person has in their pantry and how many of those ingredients you wouldn't even know where to buy. Emulsifiers, dyes, like where would you get that? You would how do you even pronounce that. 
just pronouncing them. Like, I don't even know what I'm looking at. You could tell me that's like the greatest vitamin in the world. And I wouldn't even well, know it. One of my rules for eating is don't eat any foods that have ingredients a third grader couldn't pronounce. Hmm. So basically companies cook food also to addict you. They're not trying to satisfy you. They talk about, you know, craveability, snackability, these terms. They really want you to eat as much as possible. Your spouse, your mother, your father, when they cook for you, they're not trying to maximize how much you eat. They're trying to maximize your satisfaction. And that's a very different mm. approach. So industrial food is designed to get you to eat too much of it. That's the business model. It's made with ingredients to make it look like it was cooked more recently and not so far away in time or space. And also those foods to survive have to have certain things removed, like fiber, like water. These are essential parts of the human diet that are not present in highly processed food. And we have tons of evidence that, now we should define processed food. I mean, I'm not talking about olive oil, which is processed, or, or flour, which is processed. I'm talking about what are called ultra-processed foods. These are foods made to be consumed without any further preparation. It's everything from soda and candy to dried soups and snacks, potato chips, all this kind of thing. They tend to have long ingredient lists. They tend to have very high energy and lots of carbohydrates and very little to feed your microbiome. And I think that's something we don't pay nearly enough attention to. Your dietary requirements for your own body are one thing. But now we know that you've got 10 trillion bacteria that are also part of your body, have an enormous effect on your health, and they like certain kinds of foods that you can't get from processed foods. They like fiber, for example. They don't like emulsifiers and other chemicals that are in food, which we now know damage the microbiome, all these bacteria living in your gut. So tell me about how this works. So if I am feeding my microbiome, all of these preservatives and dyes, does this change them over time? Does that like, can I retrain them to go back into the, <laughs> oh, you yeah. know, to liking fiber or like, what is the long-term implication yeah. to my biome from not giving it what it needs? And then how hard is it to reverse it? Yeah. So the best example are emulsifiers, which are in lots of processed foods. They allow oils and water to mix and stay in suspension. It turns out that your epithelial layer, which is to say the wall between your gut and your bloodstream is a kind of a slimy surface that allows only very small molecules to pass back and forth. Emulsifiers destroy that layer or lead to what's called leaky gut syndrome, which allows larger proteins to get into the bloodstream, which leads to an immune reaction, which leads to inflammation. So you basically end up, if you're eating a lot of processed food, with an inflamed body. And we're learning over time that many of the chronic diseases we worry about, things like hypertension, type 2 diabetes, obesity, are results of inflammation. And that has a lot to do with an unhealthy microbiome due to a diet with lots of chemicals in it, but also lots of sugar. I mean, sugar can inflame the body too. So, you know, eating for your gut isn't that complicated though. I mean, you talk about rebuilding it. Your microbiome wants to eat fiber, many different kinds of fiber. 
And there's nothing fancy about that. What that means is plants. That's where fiber is. All plants have fiber. It doesn't mean just eating whole grains. Strawberries have lots of fiber. So eating as many plants as possible will keep your microbiome happy. Okay. That was my next question is what do I need to eat my microbiome or feed it's my so microbiome? so easy. Real food. So easy. Real food. The real stuff. Okay. So one of my favorite movements, because namely because the branding was so genius, is the whole farm to table movement. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, great. I get it. I understand it. That's become a really important part about sustainable agriculture. I'm starting to hear, I have heard more, but I don't know as much about regenerative farming. And I'm yeah. wondering if you could speak a little bit about that and why that is so important. Sure. Regenerative farming is basically an advance on sustainable farming. Sustainable farming grew out of the organic movement. And this was essentially trying to remove pesticides from agriculture, toxic pesticides and clean, you know, the biggest environmental concern, if you go back to the first Earth Day, it was about chemicals, right? Now our concerns have shifted a little. We're still concerned about chemicals in the land, in our diet, but we're also very concerned about climate change. And the way you farm, if you're concerned about climate change is a little different than the way you farm if you're concerned about chemicals and pesticides. Specifically, we want farms that sequester carbon. We know how to do this. Um, certain kinds of farming will actually draw carbon out of the atmosphere and store it in the soil, which by the way is where most carbon was. A third of the carbon in the atmosphere today that we're worrying about used to be soil carbon. It gets released when you plow. It gets released when you use a lot of chemicals on your land. And we know now how to farm in a way, and this builds on organic, it's not an alternative to organic, that helps the soil to sequester carbon. i just give you an example. Cover crops. Whenever you leave the land naked, as we do in the winter in many, many places, carbon leaves and carbon goes up into the atmosphere. If you can keep a layer of green on your farm all winter long, whether that's a crop you're going to eat or one you're just going to till back in, you are storing carbon. So how do farmers do that? Like I'm thinking about like, okay, I'm going to harvest in the fall and then I've got to somehow get my whole farmland covered in green before the snow comes. Like, Yeah, well, it depends where you are. Different crops work in different places. There are crops that you can put in the Midwest that you can get into the soil in October or November that will start growing, put down roots. And whenever there's a warm day, they'll grow a little more, even through the winter. Hmm. It holds the soil in place. Plants are incredible how they sequester carbon. I don't think people understand it, but basically a plant is photosynthesizing. We know that. It's creating sugars out of sunlight and water and minerals. Some of those sugars go into the body of the plant or the grain or the food that we eat, but 40% of the sugars that the uh, plant produces go down into its root system and from there into the soil hmm. because the plants are feeding microbes in the soil that they want, that they need the services of. So basically they, and that carbon in the form of sugars enters the soil ecosystem, gets eaten by bacteria and fungi, and gradually goes into the stable form and lives in the soil. And that's what we want to maximize. And cover crops are one way to do it. In California, you can plant wheat as a cover crop, winter wheat, and uh, that will grow all through the winter with the rains. Uh, then you harvest it the following summer and people are starting to do that. So cover cropping is one technique. 
how you graze your animals is another technique. If you have cattle, let's say, instead of just letting them graze freely wherever they want and they'll eat their favorite species and leave other ones alone and, and weeds will start growing, you move them every day. Uh, it's called mob grazing or rotational grazing. And we've learned that land where you're moving ruminants like cows every day will build up tremendous amounts of carbon. You know, there's a lot of techniques that are known. There's still more techniques to be learned, but regenerative agriculture is agriculture that theoretically leaves the land in better shape than it was before, healthier, regenerated, uh, and with more carbon than it had before. And That's it's a really important part of, of solving the climate crisis, uh, which is getting really good at using agriculture to put carbon back in the soil. And to kind of go back to where you started about how we first started trying to have cleaner farming and remove the pesticides, and then we started going and trying to save the planet through smarter techniques, there is like an intersecting Venn diagram, isn't there? Like there is hope that you can do both. Yeah. And yeah. there is evidence you can do both. You know, we still have a lot of research we have to do. So for example, plowing is a huge problem. Every time you turn the soil over, you're releasing carbon. So are there ways we could leave a mat of plant matter from the mm -hmm. previous crop, just knock it down rather than plow it, and then plant within it? The Australians are doing some very innovative things called pasture cropping. We're not very good at that yet, but if we can learn how to do that, so the basically you, you never want the land to be naked. Yeah. In nature, land is not naked, and we have to figure out ways to farm that way. Um, so there's work to be done. Organic is still very important. The problem with regenerative for the consumer is there's no label yet that mm. says this is a regenerative product. And there's going to be greenwashing. There are people using that term who really don't have a rigorous meaning behind it. So yeah. eventually, I think, like organic, we're going to need to agree on a definition and then police it. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of regulation here would probably be good. Yeah. And just consumer knowledge. I mean, transparency. Mm -hmm. The problem in our food system is the food chain is so long. When you buy food, it's very hard to know how it was grown. It is really frustrating. You know, and, like. And organic is a step in that direction because you know it, it conforms to certain practices that are actually, you know, audited on the farm. But we need to do the same thing with when we raise the bar higher to regenerative. Right. So there's a certain amount that the that just we as individuals need to take accountability and responsibility for what we're putting in our bodies and having that education. And on the flip side to that, there's all sorts of like shortcuts because life is getting complicated and there's a million Zooms and I've got a family and I need mm -hmm. to like make it easy. So I'm curious to hear from you about meal kits, because that's been something that yeah. has really come to the forefront. Is that does that count as cooking? <laughs> uh, yeah, I would I would put meal kits under cooking. You're starting with whole foods, with actual things that grew in the soil <laughs> or animals that lived, and you're putting them together. I mean, basically, if for people who are not comfortable in the kitchen or don't cook regularly, meal kits are a great solution. They walk you through it. The quality is often, many of the companies use good organic and sometimes local produce, and it's a great sort of primer on like getting in the habit. One of the problems with cooking is if you're not doing it many days a week, you're throwing a lot out. And that really bothers people. Mm. You know, you buy a whole thing of celery, you make a soup, and then the rest of the celery languishes in your refrigerator till it becomes really sad. 
you feel guilty when you throw it out and food waste is another problem. When you cook regularly, you figure out another use for all those things. You put it in a stir fry the next day or you know, a stock the day after that. Meal kits, if you're only gonna cook one or two days a week, and even that is really worthwhile, a meal kit is giving you exact amounts. So you're not, there's no waste at all. There is the waste of the packaging, and that's a concern. Some meal kits allow you to return packages, boxes and things, and I think that's really important. Okay, okay. So one of the things that I ask everyone about who comes on the show is kind of what have you been doing for your own healthy well-being during this crazy tumultuous year that we've been through? I'm curious, have you developed any new healthy habits or new healthy hobbies over the last year? Well, I have had much more time in the garden. And mm -hmm. the garden has gotten more ambitious. It's it's mm -hmm. it's actually gotten a little bigger. So I'm growing more things at home. Like what? What what's a new thing that you've started growing? Oh God, let's see. What am I planting now? Well, escarole. I love escarole. It's one of the great greens. Yeah. I always okay. buy it. It's something you can get all winter in the northern tier and the and and the east coast. So I'm growing escarole this year, and I have these beautiful big heads of escarole, and one of them can be a meal. And broccoli too. I'm growing mm -hmm. old-fashioned heading broccoli. Great. But the other big thing I'm doing that I hadn't been doing regularly is I'm baking bread every week. In fact, right now I have a loaf that's uh, proofing. And I had learned how to bake when I was writing my book, Cooked. And, and there's a lot of baking in the Netflix series based on that. And I studied with a great baker in San Francisco named Chad Robertson at Tartine and learned a lot and developed a start, sourdough starter. But baking is hard to fit into a life when you're going to work and, and you're really busy. And now that I'm home so much, it's a perfect thing to do. Every 45 minutes, I walk downstairs and I turn this dough. And then at the end of the day, I'll bake it. So as soon as I get off this Zoom, I'll you know turn the dough and, and uh, get ready to shape it and bake it. And that's been really satisfying. And I grow and I bake sourdough, mostly whole grain breads. And I bake enough that I'm giving one away every week. I have a kind of my scholarship loaf I give to some friend or relative or somebody who- I will send you my address. <laughs> <laughs> I would I like to get on that across, list, Michael. <laughs> I sent one across the country to my mother and uh, it costs like $50. It's just not a smart use of that. Yeah, not a, that's, a, that's a hell of a loaf of bread. All right. Yeah. Uh, so one question that I would love for you to answer before we wrap up today, we talk a lot on the show about micro steps. Because it's a lot to like go start a garden and bake a loaf of bread and and learn how to bake, you know. So I'm curious what advice that you would offer our viewers. What's one thing that they could do today that would be a step in the direction of making a positive impact on our planet and on their own well-being? Take one day off from meat every week. Meatless Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, but a day where you don't eat any animal products. It's not that hard to do. It'll get you eating more vegetables, which will have all sorts of benefits. And it'll get you, you know, helping to shrink the meat economy. I don't think people realize, but the meat habit is one of the biggest ways we contribute to climate change, particularly beef. Now, there are sustainable ways to grow beef, but most of the beef available to us puts an enormous amount of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So I'm a strong believer in like start small, baby steps, just that one day without meat. And one of the things that happens through that step is you discover vegetables, you discover other things to eat and you become more resourceful and perhaps you start cooking. 
but also, you know, cooking one day a week too, if you're not cooking at all now, uh, you know, highly recommended. During the pandemic, you know, the average American has put on somewhere between 25 and 30 pounds. Oh, um, not my viewers. No way. <laughs> I'm sure nobody at Salesforce. But the fact is, partly because of stress, I think, we are eating more and we're eating more processed foods and it's taking its toll. And at the same time, I don't think people realize that your likelihood of getting COVID-19 is vastly increased if you're overweight. 45% of hospitalizations for COVID have been people who are overweight. So the benefits of eating real food and the health implications of it are really important. Our diet has been killing us slowly in America for a long time. The last year, it's been killing us a lot more quickly. So the importance of diet, I just cannot overestimate. But it's not that hard and it's not that complicated. You know, and, and, and you know, I boiled it down to seven words. Eat food, by which I mean real food, stuff that your great-grandmother would recognize as food. Eat food, not too much mostly plants. That's really all you need to know. Eat food, not too not much, much, mostly, mostly plants. plants. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. This has been an absolute pleasure. Well, uh, thank I, you, Jody. I hope for the opportunity. Oh, it's so great. You are welcome to come back here any, anytime. And it's, so everyone out there, you heard it, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Make your biome happy. All right. And with that, I will send you off. I hope you are happy, be healthy, and just be well. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Please be sure to leave a rating and review. We also encourage you to share this podcast with friends, family, and anyone you think could use a boost of inspiration. For more Be Well Together goodness, visit salesforce.com slash plus or click the link in our show notes. Check back here again next week for our episode with best-selling author and thought leader, Mary Frances Winters, as she addresses mental health in the Black community and ways to help heal society as a whole.